Amen. Well, our sermon text this evening is from 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll read out of verses 17 through 21. So again, that's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 21. And pay careful attention, for this is the word of God. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Amen. Well, thus ends the reading of God's word. Let us now pray and ask for his help. O Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you have to say to us today. Amen. Amen. Well, recently my parents came to visit us, and we had a good time. But if you're anything like me, anytime your parents come to visit, you become acutely aware that you are not that same kid that you used to be growing up in their home. You've changed. You do things differently now. So, for example, growing up, I was never allowed to eat on the couch. And I could never understand this rule. I mean, do you know how enjoyable it is to just cozy up on the couch with good food and a good movie on? That is like the height of luxury. And I was never allowed to do that as a kid. So I remember as a, as a young child telling myself, well, when I get older, I am going to eat on the couch as if that's like the height of freedom or adulthood or something. And, well, it's not uncommon these days to find Libby and I eating on the couch. It's just so much more comfortable than those hard dining room chairs. And that's all fine and good until your parents come to visit. And then you must decide, well, are you going to do things the way that they normally do it? Or are you going to do things the way that you normally do it. And while it turns out, we ended up eating at the table most of the time, whether it was our dining room table or that of a restaurant. But I think there was some rebellious side of me that thought, this is my chance to get them to eat on the couch. And so my wife and I, we we chose a day while they were here And I went out and got my dad's favorite takeout place, and we brought it back, and we made them sit on the couch, we gave them his favorite food, and we turned on the TV, and you know what? They enjoyed it. 
But I would venture to guess that next time we visit them, we'll be eating at the table again. But you see, my parents knew, as good house guests do know, that any time you go into someone else's household, well, they do things a little differently than you might do them. And as good house guests, you do, the, you do things the way that they do them. Right? You don't insist on your own way. You adapt. Well, this illustration, it might seem a little silly, but I think it helps to illustrate the force of our text. We have been invited into the household of God, but not merely as simple house guests, but we've been invited in as his adopted children. And so now, as part of God's family, We ought to do things the way that God does them, not the way that we are used to. Well, how does God want us, his children, to live? Well, that is what our text is all about. So if you want to follow along, we will consider our passage underneath four points. First, the fear of your father in verse 17. Second, the pricey purchase in verses 18 through 19. Third, the logic of love in verses 20 through 21. And lastly, the exiled existence, where we will circle back up to verse 17. Now let us look together at our first point in verse 17, where Peter tells us exactly how God wants his children to live. I'll go ahead and read verse 17 for us again. Peter said, And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now here Peter begins this passage by saying that if you call the righteous judge your father then you ought to live your life in fear. Now, this command, it's very difficult to understand because naturally we would expect those who don't call God Father, that they ought to live in fear. I mean, after all, Peter has just said that God is the impartial judge. That means you cannot smooth talk your way out of God's judgment. You cannot buy your way out of God's judgment. No, God judges all according to their own evil works. And for those of us who do not call God Father, well, that is terrifying. But here, Peter is not addressing those people, but he's speaking specifically to those who do call God, Father. And he says that it is precisely because we call God Father that we ought to live in fear. Now, part of the difficulty with this command is that we likely have a wrong understanding of what Peter means by fear. So, this word fear, it can mean terror or dread, to fear for your life. 
Or it could mean something like respect or reverence. And truly, it can mean anything in between. And so how can we know what Peter means by fear in this context? Well, our first step would be to see if Peter has used this word anywhere else. And in this one letter, Peter uses this word four other times. Three of those times, the ESV translates it as respect. This word describes the relationship between servants and their masters, between wives and their husbands, and between Christians and unbelievers. They are to esteem others with respect. Only one time in this letter does Peter use this word referring to dread or terror, fear for one's life. And he actually prohibits it, saying, do not fear. So it would seem that Peter is commanding Christians to live their life in reverent fear, as the NIV puts it. So in other words, we are to honor God. But there is another difficulty with this command, and that is, Shouldn't everyone honor God? I mean, after all, God is the creator of believers, his children, and unbelievers. Shouldn't unbelievers honor God too, simply by virtue of their creation? Why does Peter here say that Christians, that God's children ought to honor him? Well, verses 18 through 19 tell us that there is something unique that God has done for his children that deserves a special kind of respect. So now let us consider these two verses under our second point, the pricey purchase. And again, the question we are asking is, why should God's children honor him? And the answer of these two verses is that we should honor God because we have been ransomed or purchased out of our futile ways at a high cost. In other words, what he's saying here is that the the cost of our adoption, well, it was not free. It was rather pricey. And look at how much it cost him. He paid for you, verse 18, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ. So again, Peter is saying, you should honor God your father, because if he is your father then he has paid a great price for you. It cost him his precious son. Well, this brings about the question, why did it cost him so much? Why was the cost of our adoption so high? Well, I used to mistakenly believe that the reason the price was so high 
was because that is how much we are worth. For instance, we all know that we live in a seller's market right now because people are willing to pay a lot of money to own a house. And now all houses are worth more because people are willing to pay more for them. And I supposed that just as you and I are willing to pay a lot of money to own a house, that is, because we think it's worth it to own, in a similar way, so did God pay for us at the high price of his son because he thought that we were worth it. So when I used to look at the cross, I saw my greatness, my value, but I had missed the whole point. The cross does not tell you how great you are, but how great the wrath of God was against you. The cross does not show you your significance, but the significance of your sin. You see, brothers and sisters, God paid not with perishable things like silver and gold because you sinned against an imperishable, eternal God. Think about this for a moment. The one that you sinned against, he is the creator of heaven and earth. And he sustains all things by the word of his power. All creation glorifies him. From the skies above that proclaim his glory to the seas beneath that obey his every command. And yet you and I had the audacity to rebel against our eternal maker. We have dishonored the one who is supremely honorable. We have provoked his righteous and impartial wrath. And so, when we look at the cross, and we see the high price, we see that it it had to be someone imperishable. For we needed a payment that could never expire. We see that it had to be someone perfect, like a spotless lamb, because our imperfect obedience has greatly offended God. We see that it had to be death, because that is what our sin deserved. The only thing worthy enough to appease God's wrath for our sin was his precious blood, was the precious blood of his perfect son. And that is what Peter is saying here. He's saying, if you call God your father, you ought to honor him because he has paid a great price to get you out of your filth and to bring you into his family. 
So do not return to your filthy ways, but live now as a child of God. But again, all of this brings another important question. If the cost of our adoption was so high, why did he pay it? And if the answer is not that we are so valuable, as I have argued against, why on earth would God give his precious son for us? Why would he pay it? Well, we don't have to guess because verses 20 through 21 tell us exactly why he paid it. Let us look together at verse 20. Peter said, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times. Why was he foreknown as the slain lamb before the the foundations of the world? Why was he made manifest in these last days to die? Here's the reason. It's for the sake of you. He did it for your benefit. Now we have a word for this. When someone acts in the best interest of another, even at great personal cost to themselves, we call it love. So again, I ask, why the cross? Well, there are two reasons And they are both right. Why the cross? Because that is what our sin deserved. When you look at the cross, see the high price of your sin. But again, we ask, why the cross? Why would he pay it? Because that is the kind of love he has for you. Not because you're intrinsically lovely, but because out of the own mysterious counsel of his own will, he chose to love you. So when you look at the cross, yes, see your sin, but even more, see his love. For your sin set the price but his love paid the cost. Well, we have seen that God has adopted us as his children through the pricey cost of his own son. And he has done this because he loves us. How shall we respond to this costly love? Well, that brings us all the way back to that command in verse 17, where Peter said, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now here, Peter is saying that because God is your father, and because Jesus has ransomed you or purchased you, you are now 
in exile. And you ought to live this exiled existence in a particular way, one that brings honor to God. But it is worth noting here that this logic is precisely the opposite of what Peter's hearers would have expected. You see, in the Old Testament, being God's son and being ransomed or redeemed by God, it often meant that you're coming out of exile. It meant that God had taken you from your slavery to this sinful world, and he's brought and taken you out and brought you into the land where you can worship him, not as a slave, but as a son. We see this link between sonship and coming out of exile in Hosea 11.1, where God says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So God loved Israel when he was a child in Egypt, but notice where the emphasis of sonship is placed. Out of Egypt I called my son. So we see there's a close tie between sonship and coming out of Egypt, coming out of exile. Well, we also see that when God redeems or ransoms Israel in the Old Testament, it is frequently talking about coming out of exile. We see this word, it often is used to describe coming out of Egypt. Now there's many examples of this. I'll just give you one because I love you. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 8. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 8. Moses said, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you or ransomed you. It's the same word there in the Septuagint. The Lord ransomed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So what does it mean to be ransomed by God in the Old Testament? What does it mean to be redeemed by God? Well, it means he has taken you out of slavery to Pharaoh. He's brought you out of Egypt, and he's now bringing you to the land where you can worship him freely as a son. This word, ransom, redeem, is also used to describe coming out of Babylon. We see this in Micah 4, verse 10. Where Micah said, Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you. Again, same word, ransom you from the hand of your enemies. So here he's saying... Israel, you're about to go into exile. You're about to go into Babylon. But do not lose heart, for the Lord will ransom you. The Lord will redeem you. He will take you out of Babylon. He'll bring you back into the land 
where you can worship him. So again, we see in the Old Testament, being God's son and being ransomed or redeemed by God, it often meant that you're coming out of exile. But here in our text, Peter says precisely the opposite. He's saying, because you call God your father, and because Jesus has ransomed you, he's redeemed you, you are now in exile. You see, brothers and sisters, God has not taken us out of exile and brought us into our homeland. No, we were in our homeland. This used to be where we belonged. We used to love the world and the things in this world. The feudal ways of this world, Peter says in verse 18, we inherited from our forefathers. This used to be where you belonged. But something has happened. God has happened. God has adopted us so that we can now call him Father. And he has done that at the high price of his own son. And he has done that because he loves us. And therefore, because he's adopted us, and because he's ransomed us, and because he loves us, this world is no longer our home. We belong to a different family now. We belong in heaven, in God's presence. And yet, our physical address, it has not changed. You still live in this world. You're still watching the news of this world, where nations are invading nations, and you're fearing the devastating consequences. You still work for people of this world system where money is prized even above integrity. And you still live in this nation where party loyalty is more important than love for neighbor. Well, you still live in this world, but you do not belong to this world. For as Jesus said, you are in this world, but you are not of this world. So you're in exile now, living in a land that is not your homeland. Well, how should you live this exiled existence? Well, again, we look back at verse 17, and Peter says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. He's saying, fear God, honor God. Or as verse 21 says, place your faith and your hope, not in the systems of this world, but in God. 
In other words, Peter is saying that you should live this exiled existence for your homeland, your new homeland, for God. What does it mean to live for your new homeland? Well, living for your new homeland means that when this world panics because they fear World War III, you have peace because you know that the worst thing they can do to you is take your life, thus bringing your exile to an end and ushering you into your eternal homeland in God's presence. Living for your homeland means that when everyone else in your workplace is lying in order to make more money, you remember that all of the silver and gold in this world is worthless in your homeland. You have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You now belong to the heavenly kingdom. And there is no exchange rate for earthly money. But your integrity matters to God. Now you may be the only one telling the truth. But consider your truth telling as your accent, which which sets you apart as a stranger in this land. Living for your homeland means that while all of your friends on Facebook, and while everyone else at the Thanksgiving dinner table are eager to pick a fight against anyone who is of that political party, You do not join the fight. Because even though you live in this world and you vote for the best policies of this world, your citizenship is ultimately in heaven. And your greatest concern is not that your friends and family would belong to a particular political party, But your greatest concern is that they would belong to the heavenly kingdom, to God. Brothers and sisters, you are in exile now. You are strangers to this world because you belong to a different world. You belong to God. God is your father And he has adopted you at the high price of his precious son. And he has done that because he loves you. Therefore, honor him. Live this exiled existence for your new homeland. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have adopted us at the high price of your precious Son. Help us to believe that today. Help us to believe that you really do love us in Christ today. And help us to live this exiled 
existence for our new homeland for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.